Uh, we've been continuing to go through this series, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, as we look through the book of Colossians. And now we find ourselves in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. So that can be found on the inside leaflet. And I'm going to go ahead and read that for us, Colossians 2, chapter 16 through 23. This is Paul speaking to the Colossian church. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The word of the Lord. Well, I went to the Kroger recently. We were hosting our community group at, uh, at my house. And you know, we do a lot of events at our house. And when I go into Kroger, it's always the question, what am I gonna get? Do I go with quality, like the name brand product, or do I go with quantity, the off-brand product? Because we all know the off-brand product is about 25, 30% cheaper, and you can buy more of it. Now, the off-brand producers know this, and they're trying to beguile you into buying their wares instead of the real thing. And so their goal is to make their product look exactly as much as possible with the other product. So I actually brought a couple of products from Kroger to illustrate this. For instance, we know Dr. Pepper, okay? If my, my son loves the Dr. Pepper. But what about Dr. K? Huh? Dr. K. Maroon, notice, maroon, same color, Dr. 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 Pepper, Dr. K. Pretty close, okay? What else do we got here? How about this? Fruit Loops with sprinkles or fruit and frosted O's? Come on, huh? Looks pretty similar, doesn't it? You even got uh, Toucan Sam here and you got a little guy here. Pretty darn close, right? The, ori the original and the imitation. I got one more, more for you here. Cheetos Puffs. Oh, pretty good, huh? How do they air puff? Oh. <laughs> but what about cheese puffs? Huh? Come on, talk to me. Same packaging. They've got a cheetah. They've got a crocodile. Pretty darn close, huh? See, there's the original and there's the imposter wants to get as close as possible to beguile you into buying their product instead of the other.
See, that's what this whole passage is about. It's about imposters that come and masquerade as Christianity. They look very similar, they act very similar, but the reality is they're worlds apart. So there are these three imposters that Paul is dealing with in this passage that have crept into the Colossians' life, and it's stealing their joy. It's stealing their life. And you know, these imposters that we're going to talk about exist today. They creep into our lives in the name of false religion, and they steal the joy that we have in Christ. They take away our freedom and instead imprison us. And so we can be under the spell of these imposters and not even know it. Chances are one of these imposters is messing with you right now and you're under its spell. So what I want to do is I want to unmask these imposters for who they are, help us to recognize them and how to counter them. Because the truth of the matter is this, if you don't stand firm in Jesus Christ, you will fall for something else. Well, let's look at these three imposters. The first one is legalism. Legalism. Verse 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. Okay, this passage, this section here is dealing with Jewish practices eating and drinking, religious festivals, new moon festivals, Sabbath days. These are all Jewish practices. And apparently some people have come into the church and are judging the Colossians because they're not observing these. Now let's unpack this a little bit. You'll remember that God chose Israel as a nation. And he said that they would be his people, that out of the entire world, they would be a holy people, a chosen priesthood, a, a royal house. But God gave them specific restrictions on how they were to live that was to distinguish them from the rest of the world. And really there were two, you could put them in two categories, their diet and the days they observe. First in the diet, they had to, if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll just go on and on and on on how God was so careful in choosing what it was that they were going to eat because he was communicating to them some of these foods are pure and some of them are impure. And you're a clean people, and so you cannot eat these unclean foods. This is what separates you from the rest of the people. But then there were also these festivals and holy days that God commanded the Israelites that they had to celebrate. Listen to Leviticus 22. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Also, there are six days you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, a day of sacred assembly. So these Israelites were supposed to observe these days. By doing so, they would honor the Lord and they would set apart themselves as a holy people. Probably the most famous. And if they didn't, there would be disastrous consequences. Most famous one probably is the Passover. Okay, remember the institution of the Passover? They're in bondage in Egypt. And the Lord says he's going to deliver them out. And he does these, these plagues on Pharaoh. And the last plague is he says 
that a destroying angel is going to go throughout Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family. But Israelites, you are to hold a sacred assembly. You are to cook a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, without a blemish or defect. And you're to roast it with bitter herbs. And you're to eat uh, bread without yeast. And you need to take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the door, on the outside of the door. So when the destroying angel comes along, he will see that blood on the door and he will pass over and he will not kill the firstborn in your family. But then Jesus comes along and he overturns all of this stuff. Okay, Mark 7, Jesus says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, comes evil thought, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and he goes on and on. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And the book of Mark actually says in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Additionally, he turned festivals and these special days on their edges, on their uh, head as well. Remember, Jesus is in, in the synagogue, and he goes ahead and someone comes in with a shriveled hand, and Jesus steps up right then and heals, the, heals his hand. And the Pharisees just, they go ballistic because they say, look, this is the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? He said that, that, that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, what's, what's going on here? What's the cause of this change, this radical change from one to the other? The secret is found in verse 17. These things of the past were a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, these rituals of the past could not solve the key problem of man, which was a problem inside their hearts. See, it wasn't outside that made a man unclean. It was on the inside of his heart, his sinful heart. See, all these festivals and these special days and these dietary restrictions could do was to stay the hand of the executioner, to pro pro prolong the life until a, a remedy could come that could solve the problem of the core of man's heart. I remember when I got married with Lee Ellen, um, and it was about six months into our marriage, and I, we were in our apartment, and I started feeling very sick. And I'm like, oh gosh, what's going on? But this was a sickness that progressively grew worse and worse and worse, until finally Lee Ellen said, do we need to go to the hospital? And I said, I don't think I can. And she knew we were in big trouble. So somehow she got me to the hospital, and right away, what did they discover? That I had a ruptured appendix. And I was in big trouble. And so they right away, this was actually what killed my grandfather, who was a doctor, because they didn't have the technology back then to solve it. They right away uh, took me into surgery, and they removed the appendix. But by that time, all the toxins had kind of gone throughout my body. And so they put me on the most powerful medication you could find, and they intubated me, and for about 13 days, I was in the hospital where this medicine was just keeping me alive. The reason I'm alive today is that they got to me uh, early enough to get that appendix out, which was that problem. See, this is what he's talking about here, that these religious practices 
could not fix the problem of the heart. See, what if I had gone in to the uh, hospital and they had said, well, yep, you got a problem here. You've got a ruptured appendix. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you on some antibiotics and we're going to admit you to a hospital room. Now, they could have pumped me full of antibiotics and IV and they could have kept me alive for a while. But sooner or later, if they didn't take care of that core problem in my heart, I was going to die. See, that's what's gone on with Christ. See, those other things were keeping the Israelites alive, but they were a shadow of the things that were to come. It's Christ who performs that radical heart surgery in our lives to solve the problem that we could not solve, that we could never solve through religious behavior. See, all of us fall into two camps, everyone in this room, everyone in the world, either before the surgery or after the surgery. See, some of us who are before the surgery, who haven't trusted Christ yet, are playing what I call the religion game. I'm coming, I'm, I come to church, I uh, give money, I volunteer, I serve, I do all of these religious practices, counting on those to be able to solve the problem of the heart. But in the end, they can't, because it's only what Christ can do for us that can change us, not what we can do to change ourselves. But some of us fall into that after the surgery camp. Christ has performed a radical work on our heart, He's taken out that ruptured sin nature and replaced it with himself. But yet we find ourselves falling back into this trap of measuring our spiritual life by what we do. The result is a guilt and a joyless life because a legalistic life is all take and it's no give. See, here's the way legalism works. You ready? You go ahead and you wake up and I start praying and I spend time praying and then I'm all done praying and that little voice says, are you sure you prayed enough? You didn't pray for these guys, did you? Don't you care about them? Yeah, 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 I care about them. Let me pray for them. Well, why are you spending so much time praying? Why don't you go out and serve somebody? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, I'm going to go serve someone. And so I, I go and I work and I help out in the homeless kitchen and I go ahead and there's that little voice saying, you don't really witness to people, do you? You're so busy serving people, you don't care about their souls. Why don't you go out and witness to people? Oh gosh, I better go witness to people. And again, and again, and again, because legalism is all take, and it's no give. See, what would have happened if a year later after the surgery, you went and you found me, and I was still on an IV, and intubated, and medication? You would say, that's ridiculous. You've been healed. It's time to live a different way. It's time to get out of those old practices and live in the spirit-filled life. Now, am I saying that disciplines and practices in the Christian life are bad? No. But they're bad when we make them the ultimate things, the things that are going to save us. Salvation is found not in one can, what one can do to merit his forgiveness, but in what Christ has done to purchase our forgiveness. If we don't stand firm in Jesus Christ, we will fall for something else. Well, this brings me to my second imposter that masquerades as Christianity. The first was legalism. The second is mysticism. Look at verse 18 and 19. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. 
Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together, grows as God <clears throat> causes it to grow. All right, let me interpret this for a little bit. In the town of Colossae, there was a small Christian contingent. Well, we don't know exactly what size it was, but most likely the prevailing spiritual um, uh, fad of the day was what they called Gnosticism. There were these Gnostics that believed that you could not get to God, but only through a certain way, because God was a spirit and man was flesh, and all that was flesh and matter was evil. But there was a way to get to this spiritual God who they called the, the dark abyss or the pleroma, the fullness. There were these 15 pairs of angels that descended in their order of holiness from God. The further away they got from God, the, and they were, they were given these names like reason and charity and truth, the further they got away from God, the more matter they became, the more flesh-like they became. And in fact, Jesus was the first of those 15 angels. He was the one closest to us. And so these people were saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is only the beginning. You need deeper revelation. You need deeper spiritual experience before you can continue to move up the ladder until you get to God. You're just at the beginning, not at the end. And Paul says, don't let these people disqualify you. This word in the Greek is literally like an umpire that goes ahead or a judge that passes judgment on you and says, nope, you don't quite make the cut. See, we can easily be pulled into what I call the who is more spiritual game. You ever play the who is more spiritual game? You walk into a Bible study and, you know, you're feeling a little bit self-conscious and there's a person there and they start spouting out theological lingo and then people start praying and everybody has these beautiful prayers and you feel like your prayers don't have a lot and so you, you start sort of puffing up your spirituality to feel like you fit in because deep down you feel like, oh my gosh, I must not have it all together. See, that's what the Gnostics were saying. Jesus is not enough. You need more. I remember when I was 23, 24 years old, I uh, uh, went into a charismatic church. Became a believer when I was 18, so my Christian experience was pretty limited. I came from an Episcopal background. I went to an Episcopal church, so I walk into this charismatic church, and I was floored, let me tell you. I mean, it was, you know, they were clapping, I mean, raising hands. There were people running down the aisles. And I'm literally blown away by this. And I'm feeling extremely self-conscious. So it, it was kind of like one of these things, well, when you're you know, in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know, so I started getting excited. You know, I started getting all crazy here and acting uh, like a totally different person trying to fit into the spiritual game. You know, and I look over to Lee Ellen, who's sitting right next, standing right next to me, and I said, come on, come on. And she just gives me this look like you're a complete idiot. <laughs> See, what, what was going on there was that I was so connected looking around what was going on around me that I forgot what the service was all about in the first place. It was about Jesus. I lost connection with the head. See, we live in a culture that places a premium on spiritual experience, don't we? 
The worship has to move me. The pastor, if he doesn't say something that's powerful, that shifts me, that something's gone wrong, you know? It's almost like every church is kind of a restaurant and people are on an evangelical pub crawl, okay? Man, I really need some good worship today. So I'm going to go to Spring Branch because I need that real great worship. Or no, today I, I need some really good teaching, you know? So I'm going to go to Trinity Presbyterian because I got to get that teaching. Or, wait, I, you know, I really need some community here, you know? And Grace Bible has a great community, so that's where I'm going to go. And we're kind of like, we're selecting these experiences, I remember, you know, uh, some people ask the question, you know, you come back from a service, well, you know, how was the service? How was the worship? Oh, it was okay. What are we really saying there? What we're saying is it was okay in what it did for me. But the worship is all about him. It's not about us. It's not about having that spiritual experience because Jesus is not an emotion Jesus is a person. We, we're like junkies looking for a spiritual high. We've replaced the authentic thing, Christ, with something else. Christ says, no, stay connected to me. I am the head. I'm the one that you're looking for. Don't substitute me with a spiritual experience or an emotion. When you come to a service, my friends, what are you hoping to find? Fantastic music, beautiful facilities, great preaching. Are you looking for a feeling? Are you looking for Jesus? Because what you look for, you're ultimately going to find. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. See, Jesus is enough. He's not a stepping stone. He's the head. So let's not trade mysticism for the real thing. Let's hold on to Christ. Because if we don't stand firm in Christ, we will fall for something else. This brings me to my final uh, point, my final imposter, which I would call moralism or asceticism. See, if legalism is characterized by what we must do, asceticism is characterized by what we must not do. Look in, at Colossians 2.20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These all are destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Indeed, these regulations have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Some of you may come from this background. Don't dance. Don't sing. Don't play cards. Don't, don't go with girls who do. Don't, don't, don't. In fact, your whole life is characterized by what we don't stand for rather than what we do stand for. And you know, there are good intentions in that to live a holy lifestyle, but at the end, it gets down to withdrawing from life rather than engaging with it. This passage says that this has the appearance of wisdom, but it lacks any value in holiness. There was a period in the Middle Ages called the monastic period, where people said, I've got to get out of this world. I'm too worldly. I'm too sinful. And so these people would go off to be a, 
a, a monk or a hermit. You know, they'd go to a cave and they'd decide all we were going to eat was bread and water and we would not wear any clothes and we would deny ourselves of anything in order to try to get to God. Well, it's interesting because we have some of the journals of these monks. And what we discover is they're no happier than anyone else. In fact, their journal is constantly filled with, I'm not good enough. I, didn't, I wasn't able to stop thinking this way. I wasn't able to stop doing this practice. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. How many of us have tried the same thing? To flee from something, to get away from it, to abstain, to get away, and yet we don't seem to have any power. We continue to go back to the same thing again and again and again. But the secret is not going to the cave. The secret is going to the cross. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why are you now submitting to them? See, we have a new master. We have died with Christ. We no longer belong to the world. We're joined to Christ. The Colossians have been submitting to the wisdom of the world to overcome sin. Paul is saying, rely on Christ. He is the answer. In Oh, actually, today is the day. This is the two-year anniversary of Liellen and I uh, for adopting Maria. This was the day that we actually took custody of her in Nicaragua. And before then, we'd been going back and forth to the orphanage to you know, spend time with her, and then we'd have to leave her, and we'd have to go into our world. But finally, today was the day when we could take her out of that orphanage and bring her into our home. And it was a special time, you know, because we realized this was the time when Maria would never have to go back again to this dingy little orphanage in the middle of this canyon. She had left her old world and she was joining a new one. Now Maria would have to unlearn many things from the orphanage. See, she was very, she didn't have any parents. She had to be independent. She had to rely on herself. But now she had a father and a mother to take care of her and to watch over her and to sing her to sleep at night. And she had to learn to trust us in this new way of living. It's hard to break old habits. It's hard to not fall back into that old way of relying on ourselves to live this Christian life. But Jesus has given us a new way of living. I've said it once, I'll say it again. The Christian life isn't difficult. The Christian life is impossible. You can't successfully live the Christian life. See, right now some of us feel like that monk in the cave. We have this battle that we've been fighting with, this particular sin. You know, maybe it's workaholism, maybe it's, uh, you know, I don't know, gossip. Maybe it's, it's food. And, and we try to set these rules. We try to set these barriers to stay away from it. And yet we find ourselves going back and back to it. See, there's no power in our principles. Rules are not enough. We need a person. Christ has meant to us to live a victorious life, but it's only as we trust in him. One of the greatest things that you can do is give up, to admit defeat, and to look to Christ. Where you get to the point where you say to Christ, I can't but you can, and I am in you, and you are in me. I won't, but you will, and I am in you, and you are in me.
I don't want to, but you want to. And I am in you, and you are in me. Paul put it this way, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Asceticism is just another imposter coming alongside the real thing, stealing the freedom that we have in Christ. I want to conclude with this thought. I finished up my shopping exploration and I was walking out. Uh, actually, we were walking in with my son and my son asked for what? A Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so we walked on over there to the drink machine and there were two drink machines right next to each other. One was the Dr. Pepper and the other was King Cola. <laughs> Dr. Pepper, $1.50. King Cola, 25 cents. And I looked at my son and I said, son, are you kidding me? You can have six King Colas. They even have one that looks like a Dr. Pepper. And my son turned at me and he said, dad, you can't beat the real thing. Isn't that true? Accept no imposters in your life. If you're struggling to be religious and you feel like you're living a life of failure, look to Christ who is our righteousness. If you're struggling with mysticism, you're looking for that spiritual high and you feel defeated, what you're really looking for is to be connected to the head. Look for Jesus, not for emotion. And if you're struggling with asceticism, living by rules, don't do this, don't do that. Give up on yourself. Trust in Christ. He is the one that you've been looking for. Because when we stand firm in Jesus Christ, we will then not fall for anything else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the real thing.